This is Nathan Tankis, bringing you the Notes on the Crises podcast, which is the audio component to my newsletter, Notes on the Crises. On our third episode, I'm speaking to Karina Patricio Ferrara Lima, a law professor at the University of Leeds, and Chris Marsh, a macroeconomist working at Exant Data. We're talking about the International Monetary Fund's programs involving Argentina for the last few years, and in particular, whether that program has been legal under international law. Their work has uh, started uh, to cause quite a stir in Argentina itself, which we will talk about later. Welcome to the show, Karina and Chris. Hi. Thank you, Nathan. First things first, let's start at the most basic level. What is the International Monetary Fund? The International Monetary Fund is an international financial institution created in 1944 at the Bretton Woods Conference, and it's the world's international monetary institution for excellence. Uh, It currently has around uh, uh, 1,990 member states, and the core purposes of the fund are established in uh, the IMF Articles of Agreement, which is the constituent treaty of the organization. Basically, it's um, uh, promoting international monetary cooperation, uh, facilitating the expansion of international trade, promoting exchange rate stability, um, ensuring, ensuring current account convertibility, which was uh, a major problem at the time the fund was created, uh, and uh, which is particularly interesting in as far as our paper is concerned, lending to members facing temporary balance of payment problems under adequate safeguards and shortening the duration and lessening the degree of disequilibrium in the international balance of payments of uh, its members. Right. So, Karina, so that we can understand where your argument goes, which we'll talk about more later, can you give us a, a little introduction more specifically into the, the legal foundations of the IMF existence and its charter and how that should inform the way we think about how the IMF interacts with uh, member countries? Yes. Uh, so, basically, the uh, Article 1 of the IMF's Articles of Agreement assigns a functional competence to the IMF, which is providing balance of payment support to its members, um, and also a set of substantive conditions for the exercise of this functional power, um, which basically are three. Uh, that, well, the first one is that the general resources of the fund should only be made available to its members on a temporary basis, The second one is that the support must be provided under adequate safeguards. And the third one is that the support must shorten the duration and lessen the degree of disequilibrium in the balance of payments of the beneficiary. So basically here, the idea is that by providing support on a temporary basis and under adequate safeguards, the articles of agreement expect that that members will be able to correct their balance of payments imbalances without resorting to measures destructive of national or international prosperity. Uh, those, well, it's crucial to highlight that those measures were uh, quite common um, during the interwar gold exchange standard, where um, it was widely understood that uh, countries performed bigotry neighbor policies in, in this regard. And so, uh, balance of payment support here is intended to fulfill the purpose of promoting exchange rate stability, uh, which is one of the core purposes of the fund, and preventing contractionary adjustments at domestic and international levels. So here, 
uh, it's important to understand that those uh, both the, the functional competence of the fund and the set of substantive cumulative conditions which must ex exist for the exercise of this power uh, cannot be waived um, in any particular program because they are a core purpose of the organization set out in the constituent treaty. So uh, it's uh, part of uh, treat a hard law treaty ob obligation and cannot be waived on any grounds, including country ownership in specific programs. So it's beyond the scope of this interview to get into the longer like history of the IMF and Argentina in the early 2000s crisis and you know all the details and, and, and all the important stuff that happened at that time. But we do need to have some basic sense that something happened back, back then to understand the, the engagement of the IMF and Argentina today. And so, Chris, I was wondering if you could give me a, a brief overview of what we need to know about that experience to understand what Argentina has been going through the last five years or so? Sure, thank you. Um, well, I think maybe the place to begin is is in the 1990s, where the the I mean, for decades the the Argentina had struggled with achieving what you might achieve, what you might describe as some sort of a macro stability. So there are periods of very high inflation, uh, and uh, and and periods of um of long periods of recession. So in the 1990s, they instigated a, a very a rigid fixed uh, currency board rule for their currency, whereby basically every unit of local currency was backed by a dollar. So, and that, that actually um, initiated a, a very strong decade of growth in Argentina, such that by the mid-1990s, these were seen as like the poster child of, you know, of globalization or the Washington consensus or however you want to frame it. So Argentina was a, a success story for many years. Um, but underlying, underneath the surface, there were, there were problems. And the problems were um, just kind of, Twofold. The first one was that um, the, the provinces, the, the, the outside of the central government, so the, the regions in Argentina were uh, were basically able to spend money that they weren't taxing, uh, able to tax themselves. They were reliant on transfers from from the central government, so there was no control over spending, and so they, they ended up year after year having larger fiscal deficits, meaning the government as a whole was spending more than they were taking in in taxes. Um, and then the second problem was that uh, during this time, because precisely because they were a poster child for globalization, many investment banks and many uh, of the international um, financial community lent them the money that would allow them to get through this. However, in doing so, because the external money was coming in, it was coming in cheap, they were spending more than they were earning and they were running what's known as a current account deficit. So they were basically um, spending more with the rest of the world than they were earning. The, the result being that by the end of the 1990s, they had a situation where um, they had an external deficit, as it were, the current account deficit, and that they needed to finance with dollars. And of course, what happened at that point was the foreign investors realized we aren't going to get paid back with these dollars uh, because Argentina cannot generate the foreign exchange needed to service this debt. So Argentina ended up in a situation which resulted in an extremely deep uh, crisis, um, you know, um, contraction of GDP of 10 plus percent. Um, huge poverty and, and, and huge, many problems. Now, then Argentina then basically left the international community for a while in the sense that they disengaged from the IMF, they repaid the money and they, 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 they uh, took, stood back from international capital and decided to basically move into a populist um, era. And I'm sure Karina has a better understanding of this than I do. 
However, basically that then led to a decade of in, in sort of in the wilderness or in isolation at the end of which they then tried to re-engage with the international financial system um, under the Macri administration in sort of 2016-17. And that laid the foundations for where we are today. Karina, do you want to add anything about that before we move on? Well, uh, I believe uh, something that we should add to the uh, 1990 situation is that uh, the convertibility regime was uh, for a long time sustained with privatizations uh, that brought uh, some um, income in terms of in foreign currency, uh, but uh, it eventually became unsustainable and collapsed in a significant way, bringing... Uh, significant political instability um, and the crisis of the political system. Uh, and the IMF program in 2001 should be understood in light of this situation as well. Um, however, this program has uh, failed quite significantly in the sense that uh, it was the largest bailout at the time in history. Uh, meaning that the first the the program we are analyzing here is not new in this regard. It's also breaking the record, but uh, uh, it, at that time it was the largest bailout in history, and it was followed by uh, the uh, significant default shortly after. Yeah, and so the point for the purposes of our conversation, it, from at least how, how I understand it from looking at your work, is that. The IMF has already engaged uh, with Argentina for a great degree, uh, had a policy failure that was supposed to lead to kind of lessons learned in the future in the early 2000s. And these IMF programs are supposed to temporary, be temporary and put a country on a kind of right basis in terms of their balance of payments with the rest of the world. And 10, 15 years later, Argentina is back in a situation where it is engaging in the IMF. Do you both think that's a fair summary? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I agree that Argentina's foreign indebtedness problems are cyclical and IMF presence in Argentina since the very beginning of the IMF's presence in Argentina is problematic because let's just recall that... Uh, the IMF, uh, Argentina joined the IMF following uh, a coup d'état in the 1950s. So it was an undemocratic government that decided to uh, that Argentina should join the IMF. So it's been problematic since the very beginning, and it's it relates to a cyclical history of uh, foreign indebtedness, capital flight, foreign indebtedness to finance capital flight, followed by defaults due to. Uh, this uh, massive uh, outflow of capital, problems of uh, both stock and, and flows. Um, and so I do agree that uh, it does relate to a historical problem. Uh, we must nevertheless here highlight that Argentina had repaid the full debt it had with the IMF. Uh, so in the early 2000s, uh, Argentina repaid the full amount of its debt. It did have problems with uh, its uh, private debt restructuring, especially you will recall that in until 2015-16, there was this dispute with uh, hedge funds, so-called voucher funds, so that they were having problems with the, the uh, private uh, debt restructuring, but there was, there was no indebtedness problem with the IMF. 
uh, it was a decision uh, adopted in the last, uh, the former administration, uh, the um, Mauricio Macri's administration, to um, return to the fund. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, before we, we get into some of the stuff today, I just want to talk about a kind of a little bit of a technical detail that, that I think is interesting and important to understand about the IMF, that when the IMF is dealing with issues of foreign denominated debt and balance of payment pro- problems in other countries, um, it doesn't just go in and lend, you know, U.S. dollars. It lends, it has loans that are in its own kind of quasi-money, we can call it, uh, called SDRs. Um, can you can, can you highlight that for us, uh, Chris, maybe, and briefly briefly tell us what special drawing rights are? Sure. So, well, special drawing rights are this synthetic currency that was created in the sort of late sixties, early seventies, at a time of the the end of the the sort of Bretton Woods, the traditional sort of uh, fixed exchange rate arrangement. And there was a, there was a perception that look, we need that there needs to be a, a global reserve asset. And of course, um, how do you how do you create a global reserve asset? Well, they came to the conclusion that you can kind of weight a basket of some of the major currencies of the IMF members, which you know at the time was probably uh, the UK, Japan, the US, maybe and Germany. And if you weight those into a kind of synthetic basket, you actually have this kind of outside asset that some sort of um, synthetic currency that you can use and issue to members as a reserve currency. And so basically, you, you can credit them this amount of money, and then they can go together and they can exchange that with each other for, for hard currency, for dollars, and so on and so forth. And that would form the basis of um, of the capacity for the international system to to generate these reserve assets, these this uh, more of an elastic currency, um, you know, so instead of being reliant on gold previously in the U.S. dollar. Um, now, this accounting process of, of 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 accounting things in SDRs therefore meant that whenever programs came along, they would always issue, they would always always, always um, have the program specified in in number of, uh, in quantity of SDR, but. Um, in practice, what will happen is that a country will immediately receive that money and convert it into dollars. So, uh, in, in actual fact, it's kind of a technicality. Great. So, you know, this kind of gives us the basics to understand what's going on today. And now we're going to get a little bit more into the details of what you both have been focusing on in your work. Before we get to the argument itself, Karina, can you give us a basic overview of what the IMF's 2018 standby arrangement uh, with Argentina was and what purpose it was supposed to serve? Yes. Well, the 2018 SBA was the largest program in the history of the fund. The total was made available to Argentina, amounted to around $40 billion. Uh, but the program itself, the, uh, the, the amount approved for the program was uh, $52 billion. And Basically, the objective was to restore market confidence uh, to put Argentina's public debt on a firm downward trajectory and uh, set realistic inflation targets. But uh, none of those objectives were met. Uh, In fact, uh, market confidence deteriorated, uh, financing needs increased really quickly as public debt moved to a higher trajectory due to uh, ongoing exchange rate weaknesses. Price uh, stability was severely deteriorated by capital flight. And uh, basically, the program had to be um, augmented already at the time of the first review. 
So it was really that the, the failures of the program are really significant in, term, in terms of uh, meeting any of its goals. And so this brings us to your argument you know, about this program. There are two aspects of your argument. A legal aspect that if an IMF program doesn't meet certain conditions, that program is illegal under international law. And an economic aspect, the economic arguments which explain why those conditions aren't met by the IMF program. Let's start with the legal aspect. Uh, Karina, what are these conditions and how can an agreement between the IMF and some member country be illegal? Yes. So as we were mentioning before, uh, basically the fund has a functional competence, which is assigned in its constituent treaty, Article 1, Paragraphs 5 and 6 of the Articles of Agreement, which is providing balance of payment support to its members. But this, the exercise of this functional competence is subject to substantive conditions, which is the support must be provided under adequate safeguards. It should be, uh, the resources should only be made available to members uh, on a temporary basis. And the support must shorten the duration and lessen the degree of disequilibrium in the balance of payments of the beneficiary. So basically, the extent to which the fund can exercise its functional competence is subject to those conditions, meaning that the, all the decision-making processes and evaluation processes at the moment of approving a program should, con- should be uh, co- co- coherent and should be conducive to meeting those uh, objectives and uh, meeting those conditions. So basically what we are doing in this paper is to analyze whether the IMF's legal mandate was reasonably uh, met, reasonably accomplished in this program. Did their evaluation and decision-making processes reasonably ensure that adequate safeguards were adopted? And so um, based on the requirements necessary to exercise the IMF's uh, functional competence, what we are doing in this paper is to analyze whether at the moment of approving the standby arrangement in 2018, the requirements were reasonably met, meaning were the evaluation and decision-making processes reasonably uh, conducive to uh, a sh- a shortening the duration and lessening the, the degree of disequilibrium in the balance of payments of Argentina, and did the support reasonably, uh, was it reasonably provided under adequate safeguards? And we conclude that uh, it was not because, uh, there, there, well, Chris will explain a series of reasoning, reasons for this, but basically our legal argument is built upon two core submissions. One is that the support was not provided under adequate safeguards. And second, that it was reasonably foreseeable that the program would actually make the disequilibrium in the balance of payments of Argentina worse instead of lessening the duration and shortening the, the degree of disequilibrium. Can, can you tell us what ultra vires is and is there pre- precedent for an international organization's actions being declared ultra vires? Yes, uh, Basically, um, ultra-virus is legal doctrine, which is used in uh, administrative, constitutional, uh, and private law as well. Uh, and it has to do with the idea that any 
entity has limited capacity and it needs to act within the boundaries and the scope of the competence assigned to it in its constituent instrument, be it a treaty or some legislation. And uh, so the idea here is that the uh, IMF's functional competence to provide balance of payments, payment support is limited in scope to the substantive requirements which are set out in Article 1 of the IMF's uh, Articles of Agreement. There are um, cases in international law which relate to ultraviarious and they are part of the International Court of Justice jurisprudence on the topic, but none of them relates to uh, financial disputes. In the paper, I discuss the scope of ultraviarious uh, based on the ICJ's uh, case law, but I must stress that uh, in terms of they, they are relevant precedents in terms of ultraviarious, but not in terms of uh, financial dispute. Should I uh, elaborate on the scope of ultraviarious? I don't know how detailed they want it to be. If it's like equivalent of a few paragraphs. It could be interesting because I, I do I do think it's an important point how much background there is to really uh, being able to apply ultraviarious in this in this situation. Okay, uh, well, basically there is no um, coherent legal doctrine of ultraviarious acts in international law. To a great extent, this is due to multiple elements associated with this doctrine. But uh, basically, we should understand it as an act taken outside or beyond the constitutionally ascribed functions or powers of the organization in question. In the ICJ's case law, there are two considerations uh, which are draw, drawn from the case law of the ICJ, which may be, uh, seem relevant in relation to the ultraviarious doctrine. The first one is um, the presumption, which was established in the advisory opinion on certain expenses of the United Nations, that an act which is appropriate for the fulfillment of function, uh, which is attributed to the international organization in a constituent treaty, is not ultraviarious. So if the organization is performing an act which is appropriate for a function, which is attributed to it, this is not an ultraviarious act. So basically, this was in regard to the validity of the UN General Assembly's expenditure on that occasion. And uh, it was established that the presumption of validity applies unless the invalidity of the act is apparent on the face of the matter or too manifest to be open to reasonable doubt. So is that clear? I'm sorry. I think I think it's good. It's good for now. I think I think people people will get the idea and, you know, it'll become clearer when we talk about the economic argument, I think. So in relation to the ultraviarious doctrine, there are two considerations drawn from the ICJ's case law, which seem relevant in the case that we are analyzing. The first one is the presumption, which was established in an advisory opinion called certain expenses of the United Nations, that any act which is appropriate for the fulfillment of an attributed function of the international organization is not ultraviarious. So um, in this case, it was established that an expenditure of the United Nations uh, done in that occasion was not ultraviarious because it was uh, appropriate to uh, fulfill the attributed function of the organization. 
but this presumption is reputable on the facts by um, whatever means it may be practicable to have recourse to if the act is too if the invalidity of the act is apparent on the face of the matter or too manifest to be open to reasonable doubt. And the second consideration drawn from the ICJ's case law is that not every act that does not conform with the organization's constitutive instrument or other governing rules should be deemed to be ultra viris. So basically, this was established in the advisory opinion on the legality of the use by a state of nuclear weapons in armed conflict, uh, in which um, it was uh, distinction was made between any acts that are ultra viris the organization itself and therefore are affected by a fundamental defect, and those that, while fa falling within the competence of the organization, were not duly adopted from a procedural or formal point of view. So uh, here, um, ultra-virus acts are conceived as those that violate substantive rules and principle as opposed to uh, procedural rules, which in principle would not constitute a ground for the invalidity of the act. Great. So, so, you know, to break that down, basically there's a difference between, oh, someone didn't follow the right procedures and, you know, that was technically, you know, ultra vires, technically above their legal mandate, but that isn't something that, you know, international law really needs to crack down on. But there are things that are subs that violate fundamental substantive principles where international law should be uh, should be in some sense intervening and declaring uh, certain actions ultra virus. Is, is that the essence of it? Yeah, exactly. Um, there is this fundamental distinction between substantive and procedural violations in which uh, any act that is substantively uh, a violation a substantive violation of the treaty uh, or the powers of the organizations assigned to it in its constitutive treaty, are uh, considered ultra virus in international law, but any sub procedural violations are not necessarily ultra virus, or it, they won't, will not constitute a ground for the invalidity of the act itself. And, and to see why you argue that the, what you're talking about isn't simply a procedural um, issue, um, but it's actually a substantive one, which is an important violation of the ultra virus principle. We need to talk about the economic argument. And, you know, this will kind of start by turning back to Chris. Um, what is the case that the standby arrangement doesn't meet the conditions for legality under the IMS charter in, in, an, in an economic sense? Because the, the, like the, the fundamental economic principles by which their program just doesn't work, doesn't make sense. Well, um, I mean, I think if you don't mind, if I can just take a few moments to express sort of like give a bit bit of history on on, on the, how the IMF came to um to to sort of um to sort of engage in the idea of of applying adequate safeguards uh, in lending money. I mean, basically, what we're talking about here is, you know, if I go to the bank manager and I borrow a hundred pounds and put it on a horse, uh, and then the horse doesn't come in and I can't pay back that overdraft, then is that because the bank manager has not done his job properly or her job properly? Or is it because I, you know, because I went and asked for the money in the first place? And you know, in this situation, the IMF is is playing the role of the, the bank manager and, and the person and the person who's who's is supposed to put in place a series of checks and balances to make sure that that money is is used correctly. 
um, uh, and according to the legal uh, requirements of the, of the fund's mandate. Now, um, this idea of adequate safeguards was was un, you know macroeconomics as a, as a as a subject was in its infancy when when the Bretton Woods happened. And so, in many respects, the the first generation of post-war macroeconomists in many institutions, including in academia, um, were were sort of grasping to try and figure out what many of these ideas actually meant in a practical sense. And so, the IMF uh, went on a journey in, in the sort of nineteen fifties and sixties to to kind of specify or or find out what it what it means to actually engage in uh, in, in programming with countries in lending money. And what that meant in in practical terms, from the perspective of um, of how they uh, of how they do macroeconomics on, on on a on a sort of on the ground level. So what what that meant was that the, that um, a gentleman called Jack Pollock came to the conclusion that he could use some of the the macro financial accounts that were available at the time due to the statistics um, reporting that was going into the IMF that that could be tweaked to create this financial programming approach. So. This financial programming approach at the IMF became the practical implementation of adequate safeguards in IMF lending. Now, what does that mean in practice? Well, in actual fact, many of the IMF's um, financial programming techniques were kind of a reiteration of what what you might describe as sort of post-Keynesian ways of thinking about the world from a modern perspective. So there were various things like sector balances that had to be made consistent, has a a flavour of Wynne Godley. There was sort of money being endogenous and not an exogenous variable, which has a sort of flavour of the post-Keynesians and and, uh, and Nicholas Caldor. Um, they had the idea that, you know, because the sector balances had to add up, it's very Minskyan because Minsky had this idea that you had, it's not double entry accounting, but it's quadruple entry accounting where every transaction actually gets recorded uh, on f- at least four occasions in, 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 the, in a sort of matrix of links between sectors in the economy. So the IMF developed this this, this approach to macroeconomics. And this was the practical way that they were supposed to actually engage with countries. Um, and this happened, this was certainly something that was refined, refined through the 1970s. But I think, um, I think maybe what happened, and it's not entirely clear, is that by the 1990s, when the nature of the, the balance of payments challenges of countries changed, and they became no longer simply sort of a fiscal problem internally, where countries were spending money that, that, and, and creating a and creating a balance of payments problem due to fiscal problems, it became a, a capital flight problem, a problem of non-residents drawing money away from the country very quickly that would cause the economy to unbalance and, and go into a depression. Around this time, the IMF discovered, well, hang on, maybe this framework that we've been applying doesn't doesn't work. But actually, that, that doesn't really make sense. The framework itself is simply an adding up a- approach. And you may put some bells and whistles on it, but, you know, it has to add up. So... In fact, what you will find is if you read Paul Bluestein's The, the Chastening, the book about the Asia crisis and the IMF's experience there, he has a quote in there by a mission chief who, was, who goes nameless. And the mission chief says that he told Bluestein, look, it's not, it's not clear that our theory works. So they, they kind of came to the conclusion that the change in the balance of payments problem means that, well, you know, our approaches don't work anymore. In fact, that's not true. In fact, the, the, the approach is an adding up constraint. What you need to do is change your mindset to understand that the, the, the balance of payments problem has changed. So inside the IMF, there was this kind of intellectual atrophy where they've kind of forgotten all of these all of these old techniques. And so if you go to the most IMF documents today and, and, and go to the back of the document, most people don't get that far. If you look at all the tables that are in there and go ahead and do consistency checks and these these sort of uh, sort of um, adding up um, exercises that was that was the central to the IMF's traditional programming approach, you'll find 
most of the documents just don't add up. They don't make sense. So it's like going to the bank manager and asking for £100, and the bank manager gives you, gives you it on the basis that he thinks the horse is going to come in. Well, that's not very useful when the horse doesn't come in. Now, can you to give us more of a background on you know this adequate safeguard idea, can you tell me oh, about debt sustainability analysis and what it is or what it was and the role that it at least used to play in meeting this standard? Well, it was uh, one kind of useful byproduct of this financial programming approach is that it, it, it focuses or it hinges heavily on the the, the um, on the, the balance sheets of the economy. So the, the monetary accounts in particular, but in general, the balance sheets of all the sectors of the economy. So if you think about you know anybody who complains about certain brand of sort of Keynesianism in the immediate post-war period as, as only focusing on flows and not stocks, well, actually, this by chance, the IMF's approach was very focused on stocks. Um, and so, in principle, the the stock of government debt was was one of the outputs of the exercise that was that was would naturally uh, occur. Um, um, and yet, uh, although that was naturally the outcome, it, it, after the Asia crisis, the Argentina crisis in the early two thousands, it obviously became clear that they wanted to formalise the debt sustainability approach because clearly it hadn't worked, or clearly they hadn't done a good job in Argentina. Um, so they actually formalised a pretty simple way of thinking about fiscal. The, the sustainability of fiscal policy, which was to say, let's look at the fiscal accounts and let's ask whether public debt can be can be kept roughly constant as a percent of GDP. Now, that's fine to narrow down on the fiscal accounts, except that the fiscal accounts are embedded in a series of um, of, of sector uh, adding up relations between all the other sectors of the economy, like the balance of payments, which is the external payments between residents and non-residents, with the monetary system, with the uh, with the corporates and households' behaviour, so you can't just isolate fiscal policy on its own to do the analysis of public debt sustainability. You have to integrate it into the entire macro financial accounts of the economy. Um, so what this debt sustainability approach did was it, it endorsed a narrow-minded, a sort of blinkered approach to thinking about sustainability of economies, to the point where. Uh, when the IMF now goes to countries like Argentina, like they did in Greece in 2010, they, they go and produce these DSAs, which are completely disconnected from, say, the balance of payments or the ability to generate the foreign exchange needed to service the external debt. So, in fact, this DSA approach uh, w- involved uh, the loss of institutional memory and involved the loss of analytical technique that had been the centerpiece for the IMF between the 1950s and the 1980s. Right. And, and can you tell us a little bit more about that Greek experience, actually, and, and how they did or did not apply the debt sustainability analysis framework and you know, how things were supposed to have changed after that experience? Well, maybe I can uh, offer a comment, and I think Karina's more expert on the legal side of it. But in, in, in the practical sense, when they went to Greece, uh, they focused, as I, as I noted previously, on, on the sort of fiscal accounts, which is to say, look, how can they how can they adjust the fiscal policy in order to achieve some sustainable, um, some idea of a sustainable debt stock? The problem in Greece was that the majority of uh, the Greek debt was held externally, so it was held not by residents but by um, you know, banks, hedge funds, whoever in in Germany, in London. So they so it wasn't really so. Th- the way that they look at fiscal sustainability is at the IMF, they say, well, can we generate this surplus of a fiscal surplus, a primary surplus, technically, the non-interest surplus? Can we generate the money to service the external debt? Sorry, the, the debt in general, which is to say, can we generate the money to pay the interest? 
Well, when your debt is held externally, it doesn't matter if you can generate a surplus in Greece, because you also need to be able to generate the dollars or the euros or the foreign exchange in order to service the people who live abroad. Now, this problem has been known at least since the, the, the German reparation problem in the early 1920s that, that resulted from the agreement at the Treaty of Versailles. So it's, it's a well-known problem that you have a transfer problem, as they call it. You can't just assume that because you can tax people that that then generates the money that you can use to pay interest to someone who lives a thousand miles away. That's unfortunately, you know, the world isn't, the real world isn't as simple as that, although many macro models kind of simply assume it. Um, and so, th so the IMF, they basically focused on, can we generate the fiscal surplus at the, in Greece so that we can keep debt roughly constant? And then they said, yeah, we can do that. We'll just raise taxes. That didn't answer the question, how are you going to pay people in Frankfurt or in, in Paris who, who, who own the bonds? Um, and so, but at the same time, there was a sense that, look, this is a very risky thing to do. And we want to make sure that the Europeans take the blame if this goes wrong. And so they actually tweaked the debt sustainability framework at that time uh, in order to try and help the Greeks. Well, in order to not help the Greeks, to, to, to actually uh, help the Europeans and make sure that the Europeans would get the money that goes to Greece, but the IMF would not take the blame. Uh, maybe Karina could say something about that change in, in rules that they applied at the time. Yeah, I, I can say um, basically um, what happened in the Greek program, I think it's a sort of interaction between the debt sustainability analysis and the exceptional access framework, because up until that time, it was understood that, um, that countries, uh, this was the uh, exceptional access framework created in 2002, when it was subsequently it was reformed in, uh, until 2009. There were some reforms to it. Uh, basically, the, the exceptional access framework until Greece um, established that the fund could only deliver exceptional financing when it found that the member state's debt was sustainable with high probability. Uh, when this uh, determination could not be made, exceptional access would only be provided if a debt restructuring was pursued that was sufficiently extensive to restore, restore sustainability with high probability. Uh, but those rules uh, were abandoned in Greece um, because it wasn't established that, uh, that Greece had uh, sustainable debt uh, with high probability. Uh, but the fund created a sort of systemic exemption during that time which allowed it to provide large-scale financing um, to Greece without any debt restructuring, uh, where there was a high risk of systemic international spillover, which was what they uh, argued in that case. So um, there was this uh, a sort of open violation of the exceptional access framework during that time on grounds of systemic uh, risk. Uh, so that's basically... Uh, I guess the issue in the Greek program. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um. So you know, I, I want to highlight um, kind of what I what I think is uh very this really important point to the argument about this this adequate safeguard standard that with without meeting an adequate safeguard standard the the in 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 your view 
the lending that the that the IMF is uh, engaged in, in in this program with Argentina is illegal. Can can you can you um, sharpen that for us? Like, w- w- give us like some sense of like how big an implication it is um, that the adequate safeguard standard is violated, and and why in this case you think it's it's so egregious. That it would just clearly be a, a violation of the ultra vera standard. Yeah, uh, basically, um, the uh, provision of adequate safeguards in IMF programs is crucial. Uh, is a crucial uh, substantive requirement for the exercise of the balance of payment support power. Um, in the sense that we must and uh, we must under- understand that the fund is an international financial institution. Uh, which has uh, member countries and it has a quota system, right? So member countries contribute resources to the fund, uh, which are made available to its members when they experience uh, balance of payments crisis. Um, uh, The adequate safeguards here is a way to uh, safeguard the resources of the international community. Uh, So uh, when... Those uh, when balance of payment support is provided without adequate safeguard, this means that uh, uh, the international community is put at risk by lending that is not made within the substantive requirements for the provision of those uh, of balance of payment support. So we should understand that in the context of the of the IMF's governance. Now. Uh, why did this program violate the adequate safeguards requirement? Well, basically, our, our arguments are built upon three main uh, points, which Chris uh, can explain further in relation to the macroeconomic argument. But basically, the financial program at initiation was built on lack of external adjustment uh, unrealistic assumptions and an accounting black hole of at least $20 billion. And together, these made quantitative program targets impossible to meet, uh, offering no safeguards in the discharge of public funds. And this has affected the debt sustainability analysis, which was therefore certain to fail. And also, uh, they because the exceptional access criteria in this case were not reasonably evaluated, this has also constituted a violation of the adequate safeguards necessary to approve this program. Thanks, Karina. Yeah. Yeah. So, Chris, you know, help hammer this point home for us. Why was, you know, the macroeconomic reasoning that they, they applied in this program so egregious that it's not just wrong, but is, is you know, highlights that they've flagrantly violated their adequate safeguard standard? Yeah, well... Um, I mean, it's really short answer is it just didn't add up. Right? I mean, the, the, the document on which this loan, by the way, the largest loan, as Karina said, the largest loan in history, uh, the document didn't add up. I mean, this is astonishing when you think about it, that the international community sits around and discusses a document that has absolutely no links to adding, adding, adding up constraints, no links to reality. Um, but to make the argument, I mean, you know, if you're going to say something doesn't add up, then it can add up in many, many different ways. So it's pretty tricky to pin down any 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 one angle you can come at it from many different angles so the way we do it in the, in in the paper is just to sort of make three three arguments the first one is that look you know and it relates to what we said earlier about the fiscal sustainability issue or the debt sustainability challenge like you can't assess 
the sustainability of fiscal policy without looking at the capacity of the economy to service the external debt. So to, to put it in sort of simple terms, right, the fiscal surplus, the primary fiscal surplus services the debt as a whole, but you need an external surplus, a capacity to generate foreign exchange, the exports of the of wine or wheat or whatever from Argentina, that needs to be sufficient to service the debt held by foreigners. Now, the program itself simply assumed uh, that, so the, the program itself assumed a large adjustment of, of fiscal policy. So they basically said, look, we're going to cut taxes, we're going to cut, uh, raise taxes, cut spending, and that's going to contribute to the sustainability uh, of the fiscal accounts. But they did. They assumed nothing of the of the external adjustment. So they basically assumed that Argentina would continue um, to to uh, to be able to import more than they were exporting. They weren't generating the foreign exchange to service the external debt. Um, so, th- so in in short, there was no external adjustment, and this is the core of the old IMF way of thinking: was that we need to generate balance of payment surplus, which means we need to 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 to, uh, to achieve external adjustment. But you might argue, well, okay, well, maybe that that, that that there could be sufficient financing of this this external imbalance that you know maybe this this makes sense, which sort of brings us on to the second argument, which is simply that the assumptions on the, the financial account were, were crazy, right? So the financial account is the ability of the, the of the economy to generate the f- uh, capital inflows. So foreigners either lending you money or you um, bringing money back home from abroad, um, and in in the program. They basically, well, in fact, the, the document is so bad that there are three different tables within the document that should more or less, well, should be exactly the same information, just sliced and diced in a different way. So, if you, But if you go into the document and pin, um, pick out these three different tables, one is in the text up front and two at the, in the, at the back, well, those three, three tables are completely in, inconsistent themselves. They, they say completely different things about how uh, the, the Argentina's external relations, financial relations with the rest of the world will evolve over the, over the course of the program. Um, so, so, so to get a little bit technical, in, in, these, in these IMF crises where they think about um, our capital account crises, these external crises that we've had in the last two or three decades, they have this idea of a rollover rate. The rollover rate is how much uh, when you when you're fa- when you're when you're faced to repay an external loan, how much is re- is is rolled over by your foreign creditors. So, if I owe hundred dollars to to someone in New York, if they buy, if they, I pay them hundred, but they buy fifty back, then I've rolled over fifty percent. So, if you go in the document, there were rollover assumptions in the in the in the in the part of the document that was presented to the board that are completely different to the rollover assumptions. If you go back and study the document at the end. So they were just clearly just plucking numbers out, out of thin air. Um, and t- to make this worse, right, so they had these assumptions about how many, how many, how many dollars foreigners uh, would, would roll over. That's, you know, that's how, how non-residents will treat you when they decide whether to lend you more money over the program. But there's also implicitly in the document an assumption about how many dollars people in Argentina will bring back to the economy. So obviously, over the years, because people in Argentina don't trust the sustainability of, of government policies, they save a lot in dollars and they save a lot of money in I don't know Miami, New York, wherever they, they stick their money, maybe in Brazil. Um, so if you, if you go and have a look uh, at the assumptions that are, are kind of implied here, they imply that domestics, if Argentine residents, brought back a, a, were going to bring back a lot of money over the next three or four years in uh, back into Argentina. And implicitly, what they're saying is they're going to bring bit this money, and it's going to go into the central bank balance sheet. And the central bank's balance sheet was going to generate 
uh, foreign exchange reserves of 80 billion by, by or 90 billion by by this year, by, well, by the end of last year. Um, in actual fact, just to put numbers in context, instead of 90 billion by the end of last year, the reserves that they achieved at the end of last year were were, uh, were, were 40 billion, and uh, this 40 billion was despite the fact that they got 34 billion more money from the IMF than they anticipated at the time. So this this crazy idea that Argentines will bring back money just didn't make sense. In fact, yes, I uh, so um, some years ago before he rejoined the U.S. administration, I remember discussing with Brad Setzer the the uh, the fact that Argentina has a lot of savings abroad. Now he uh, um, at the time he pointed out that when they were analysing Argentina, uh, they 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 assumed this money was not available to come back into the economy because there's a huge pool of savings that Argentines have. Um, that, that could be brought back home, but it's just untouchable. They just don't want to save in local currency. Um, in fact, that's almost the point of the program. And to put this, you know, put this money in, in context, um, residents of Argentina, households and corporates, nothing to do with the government or central bank or anything, they have about 180 billion in other investment assets um, and, um, and, and about 60 billion in portfolio assets like holdings of US treasuries, of, of equities abroad. So they've got a lot of money. This is like... This is nearly 50% of GDP. So they could bring it back home, but of course they, they never have and, and they never will because they never achieve sustainability. So, But the IMF program just assumed that they would bring this money back home in large amounts. So so the, the total number, I mean, it's very difficult to back out exactly what was assumed, but they must have been assuming something like uh, 80 billion in net inflows over the course of the um, over the program. So about a third of the total assets that Argentine residents held abroad, they assumed would come back in like a year? That's one way to look at it, yeah. I mean, of course, they could generate that through other means, but yeah, they could also borrow abroad and bring it home. But yeah, they basically bring back a lot of their, not not in one year, it was over the course of um, four or five years. But, you know, this is a lot of money. It's like maybe 50% of GDP. Sorry, let me take that back. Not fifty percent of GDP, but they were assuming that they would bring back about twenty percent of GDP. So you know this is a crazy assumption. So you, to build a program on that is, is just is just crazy. But the third problem, which is actually goes back to the heart of what we were talking about, adequate safeguards. Right, the adequate safeguards was a, was a series of adding up constraints that said, look, you know, two plus two has to equal four. You cannot make two plus two equal five. And so what they're supposed to do in, in when the IMF engages in these program exercises is that they put together a set of accounts of the different sectors of the economy and and they make sure there are consistency checks, an iterative process to make sure that these accounts all add up. Um, but the amazing thing about Argentina is that they, Argentina itself had, and this is why it's interesting to go back to the experience in the early 2000s, at that time there was a, there was a hidden, if you like, fiscal deficit because the regions in Argentina were spending money they, didn't, they couldn't afford and this was adding to the deficit. So in effect, uh, in effect, the, the sustainability analysis was completely flawed because the program didn't add up. They didn't go through the accounting constraints of making sure that all the sectors added up. So in the end, once you put these three sets of problems together, as we, as we try to explain, look, you know, first of all, they couldn't generate the foreign exchange in the first place through the external accounts to service their debt. Secondly, they, uh, they were assuming capital inflows that were insane, and thirdly, there was a black hole in the program, uh, an accounting, um, an accounting black hole of, um, you know, two percent of GDP per year, which was not being counted as fiscal deficit. 
May I may I add something yeah. uh, to the to this point because uh, our legal uh, analysis is based on two main uh, points. The first one is the uh, that the fund failed to ensure adequate safeguards, and uh, Chris has uh, elaborated on the reasons uh, for uh, this argument. And uh, uh, those factors all uh, lead us to the second submission, which is that it was reasonably foreseeable uh, that the design of the program would result in an extension of the um, duration and magnification of the degree of disequilibrium in the balance of payments of Argentina for want of appropriate capital flow management requirements. Because in this case, uh, there, were, there were no capital flow management requirements um, and uh, which the fund in this case was, uh, I argue, legally mandated to request because even though um, as per Article 6 of the IMF's Article of Agreement, the fund is not necessarily mandated to request capital flow um, requirements, capital flow management requirements, uh, if we construe the fund's mandate um, Together with Article 1, uh, we should conclude that the fund is legally mandated to do so when it's reasonably foreseeable that there will be large and significant capital outflows. And it, uh, based on uh, Chris' arguments, um, what he has just explained, it was reasonably foreseeable that there would be uh, significant capital outflows from Argentina. Uh, and without those measures, what we see is uh, that the balance of payments as equilibrium has only been exacerbated by the program. Therefore, violating Article 1, uh, Paragraph 6 of the IMF's Articles of Agreement, which basically mandates the fund to design programs that will um, ameliorate the balance of payments as equilibrium instead of making it worse. I was going to add to that, actually. It wasn't just foreseeable that there would be capital flight. In actual fact, capital flight was happening at the time the program was being negotiated. So at the time, they were assuming there would be capital inflows by residents. In fact, residents were heading for the door, and quite rightly so as well. I mean, there was absolutely no way that this thing would hang together. Um, and it's quite interesting that after the fact, and the, the central bank in Argentina did a calculation, and they basically say, look, after May 2019, oh, sorry, 2020, 20, uh, 18, when this thing began, uh, capital flight accelerated, I think it was about 40 billion to the end of 2019. So, so it wasn't just foreseeable, it was happening at the time. But the, the interesting thing is that the negotiation that was happening at the time was happening in Washington, D.C., because so, uh, so irked are the people of Argentina about the presence of the IMF in Buenos Aires that they wanted the negotiation to be held a long way from, from their, their back door. And um, what that kind of meant was these things they should have seen happening, they probably missed it because they weren't actually there every day at the central bank picking up on what was going on in terms of capital flows. Yeah. So we, we put all th this all together. Let's say that you both are right about this. Uh, I guess this is particularly more for uh, Karina. Where does Argentina and the IMF go from here? What recourse does Argentina have? Who has standing in what court to object to the IMF's formerly illegal program? Well, this is a, actually a very interesting question um, because uh, basically 
uh, well, the, what we discuss in the paper is that um, the consequence of the act, uh, of an ultravirus act uh, of such characteristics, is that it's uh, legally void or avoidable. I discussed this uh, further in the paper, but basically, uh, based on the ICJ's uh, case law and international practice, um, it would be fair to say this is avoidable act which means it would uh, cease to produce legal effects from the date of recognition of its invalidity. Which brings us to your question, who has the power to recognize this invalidity? Um, well, basically, because the fund has no um, review processes internally, either judicial or political uh, review processes, this brings us to the general territory of uh, public international law, uh, which... Um, is basically dealt with by the uh, co- uh, by the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. Uh, basically, that the ICJ has um, um, two types of jurisdiction: contentious, where two states can sue each other if they accept to be subject to their jurisdiction, and also uh, an advisory jurisdiction, which deals with uh, any. UN specialized agencies, which is the case of the IMF. So basically, the ICJ can hear on an advisory basis, which is not binding, but in international law, it's generally, uh, the ICJ's opinion is generally authoritative and tends to be taken as almost binding. And the uh, UN General Assembly has the power to vote a resolution that would request an advisory opinion to the ICJ in this regard. So basically uh, what Argentina could do here is a diplomatic initiative to bring the, uh, this uh, situation to the General Assembly so that it can vote a resolution requesting an advisory opinion to the ICJ about the legality of this uh, standby arrangement. Uh, this wouldn't be uh, necessarily... Uh, new in terms of Argentina's diplomatic history. Let's just recall that in 2015, there was a resolution on uh, basic principles for the restructuring of sovereign debt. Basically, those principles deal with private debt. But despite their soft law character, it's just a resolution of the General Assembly. They are a very interesting set of principles. And Argentina has basically motorized this initiative. So... uh, which was approved actually with quite an interesting majority uh, in the General Assembly of 136 votes. Uh, Let's just recall that the General Assembly to vote the resolution only needs a simple majority, which in practice would amount to 97 countries, but absent countries wouldn't count. So it would be something between 77 to 97 countries. So Argentina was able to gather a much more significant majority to vote the principles relating to private debt restructuring, meaning that it wouldn't be uh, far-fetched to perhaps imagine that Argentina would be able to, if it wanted, gather a majority to bring this uh, case to the advisory opinion of the ICJ if it was able to maybe frame the question in a way that is interesting to a larger portion of countries. Thank thank you. So, you know, I don't think it's too presumptuous to say that this is kind of one of the core issues with, you know, issues in international law is, you know, you have things like this that, that, that come up. And I think you've made a very clear case of this program being 
illegal, but we don't really have a process by which we can process an international organization's actions being illegal outside of, of kind of the force of the argument in diplomatic initiatives with other countries. Do you think that would, would be fair to say? Yes, I agree that there is a significant gap in terms of uh, review processes in international law, especially regarding the Bretton Woods institutions. There are no accountability and internal review processes or external, actually, as well, that where you can appeal and, uh, and question the validity, the legality of their acts. And, well, th- I, I guess this question extrapolates a little bit the, 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 this case itself, but it, it would be uh, necessary, I guess, to establish review, a review, an international review body of, of the Bretton Woods institutions and, and beyond. Yeah. And, uh, the other thing that I'm interested in, you know, kind of before we bring this to a close, is, you know, there's a, obviously a huge issue with IMF programs related to the pandemic and its engagement with dozens, maybe maybe even more than 100 countries uh, in that context. I was wondering uh, how, how both of you, I guess starting with Chris, have been thinking about the implications of your work here for how the IMF is responding to the coronavirus crisis internationally. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question in the sense that, um, I mean, the, the fund at the time, they... they yeah, you know, as it were, they threw money at the problem, and I think it, it's always important for them to be seen to be to be reacting to, to the crises as they happen. Um, the issue, in a longer term perspective, is look, we we it's probably reasonable to think at the beginning of the crisis this was just a liquidity problem. So if we lend countries money, then look, you know, ideally things will go back to normal relatively quickly. Uh, in fact, what we've probably seen is something closer to like the, re- the reorganization of sort of spending and production of activity globally in, in, in ways that could not possibly have been foreseen. Um, and so, you know, even if they were throwing money at the problem to begin with, the, the issue now becomes, look, can you, can you seriously take a look at the, the changed constellation of global flows and, and, and capacity to generate foreign exchange uh, and say that all these countries can simply pay this back? If not, then you have to ask the question as to, you know, are we going to um, try and find a way of alleviating the burden on, on these, these countries that have taken the money? And it's not every country that will, that will, be in, will be in, in, have problems, but they need to take a serious look at this. But what we've learned from experience, both with Argentina and the influence of the U.S. Treasury in the, in the lending decision to begin with, in the Eurozone crisis and the influence of the Europeans in, in making sure that money was lent when it couldn't be paid back, and more, more recently, because of the rise of China and the, and the sort of the Belt Road Initiative in lending money to, to many frontier markets, is that core member states who can control the narrative at the board at the IMF are able to force the staff and the, and the management to, to, to gamble for redemption when countries would otherwise be in, in, in uh, would, uh, should more sensibly look to restructure the debt, alleviate the burden, and then begin to grow again. So the, the key has to be that the, the, the politics of that lending decision, now that we can take a serious look at how the, the world economy has changed, the IMF needs to be allowed to, give, to, to go ahead and, and actually do a serious uh, assessment of the capacity to, to generate this foreign exchange. If they do that, then, then there will be countries that need to restructure, but there will be other countries that don't need to. And in the end, that would, that would mean that many of the countries that would otherwise suffer under this burden of debt will actually be given the reprieve to, to grow out of the of the challenge they face. But the politics of this is always it's always the case that the credit of countries 
force the fund to gamble for redemption, and that imposes more the greater losses on the people uh, on the ground. So, you know, big topic. Thanks again for being here um, and, and talking to us about this. Where can listeners find both of you and your work? Well, uh, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Nathan, to, for hosting us today for this very interesting talk. We are really happy to be here. And, uh, well, basically, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at kpatricio underline. And uh, this is the social uh, media I use the most. So uh, uh, I, would, I would be happy to um, interact with you all on Twitter. Chris? Yeah, so, well, I mean, most of the public stuff I do now goes on the Substack, which is Money Inside and Out, which is uh, sort of um, managed by Exante Data. Um, but on Twitter, I'm general theorist. Um, but, um, you know, I should probably put my name on there at some point. But uh, I go under the general theorist uh, moniker. Uh, this has been the Notes on the Crises podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Tankis. To find and subscribe to the podcast, as well as to the newsletter, go to crisesnotes.com. That's C-R-I-S-E-S-N-O-T-E-S dot com. Among other things, a paid subscription comes with access to written transcripts of every Notes on the Crises episode. Stay safe and have a good week. Notes on the Crises.